Welcome to Post and Black, everyone. My name is David Hunter Jr., where we celebrate black excellence behind the lens. Today, we have another very special episode here today. We are here with editor and director James Wilcox. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, David. Thanks oh, for having me. No, it's awesome. We're going to talk about a new film that you worked on and a lot of a lot of credits that you've done, but obviously the new film, 13 Lives, we're going to dive into that. But as a custom to Post and Black, we always like to start with an icebreaker. Are you okay with that? Let's go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, we live in Los Angeles. We live in the United States of America. But if you could live in any country, any city, anywhere else outside of the U.S., where would it be? Oh, wow. I have to say maybe Paris. Paris. Okay. Yeah. What's, what sticks out about Paris to you? Just the quality of life, the beauty of it, the 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 whole vibe of everything, the yeah. love that's in the air, the appreciation mm. for art, for yeah. all things beautiful, for just um, the just that quality of life. Yeah. yeah. I've never been, I hear, you know, it's like a very romantic city, you know, it's a beautiful city, you know, people always, you know, throw that accent on that petty, you know, something about <laughs> it, like going there and obviously you internationally, you know, travel yourself. So if you stick out or if you say that city sticks out to you, there's something special. So I need to get over there for sure. You know, yeah, how's brother. the food over there? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, as, as wonderful as the food is. Yeah. After a while, I did find myself just wanting a simple meal with no butter sauces, <laughs> no cream, none of that. That's funny. Uh, but no, it's it's amazing. They just have a very high ethic for food, wine. If you appreciate all those things, cinema. Yeah. Um, one of the best trips my wife and I have ever gone on, and we went on a, a dinner cruise, yeah. a, like a twelve course dinner cruise oh, wow. on the Seine River with all sorts of people from all over. None commonly speaking, one language. Yeah. And by the time we got through all the courses, all the wine, we were all best friends, hugging each other, wow. laughing, joking, getting off the boat, staggering, <laughs> drunk, yeah, you yeah. know. But I mean, we had a great time. Well, of course, that sounds amazing. That yeah. sounds amazing. And it's actually a good uh, segue kind of into the conversation because this is an exciting topic. I'm excited to talk about this uh, new film that you worked on, 13 Lives, with director Ron Howard. That's an international film as well. Um, it talks about a very powerful story, very real story, um, new to to almost not happening le less than five years ago. Yeah, you know 2018. I mean? Yeah, 2018 when it happened. When it happened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 12 young boys. I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit yourself, but just so you can talk about the story. And then we'll talk, talk about how you even got attached to the project yourself to work on it. Well, for me, it's probably, I remember the story in 2018, yeah. but I didn't follow it closely I knew the outcome. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the details on how the boys were rescued. Right. Uh, 2018, I was actually working on Hillbilly Elegy with Ron Howard. Right. And we were uh, just racing to finish that. And then this story was happening internationally. And it didn't really kind of hit American soil like until about day eight or nine mm -hmm. or ten. Because the first couple of days, no one really thought it was a big deal. Right. They thought... I think locally in Thailand, they thought, we'll go in there, we'll hey. find the boys, mm -hmm. this won't even be a story, and then mm -hmm. it grew because they, they couldn't get the boys, right. you know, and so it just kept kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. International volunteers started right. arriving in Thailand, military forces started coming from all over the world. Mm -hmm. It just became this amazing, like, effort, global effort right. to rescue these kids and their coach. Right. So that's kind of, I knew about that part of it. Um, but in terms of like knowing the details, I was I was foggy okay. on the details. Now, I was I was gonna say I remember the story as well when it was happening, and it was it was something like you said you see it. But I'm, I'm, we're, if we're being honest, there's so many things that happen every day, oh, international yeah. in, in the states alone. So you see that, and you're like, okay, it's gonna get taken care of. 
But then when it really came to prominence and you're like, wait, this is a really, really intense situation over there and kind of the, you know, it magnified even more. I, I want I want to talk about as a, as a storyteller, because obviously we're talking about a film and if you haven't seen the film, everything turned out OK, you know, for the for the boys and their coach, they were rescued, obviously. So we're, we're thankful for that. But when you talk about that type of story and, and somebody approaches you with say, hey, I want to I want to we're going to tackle a real life situation here's a story. How did that even come about, you know, reading the script? You already know the details, you know the outcome. What is that like when you already know it, but then seeing the script and see if it matches the same, you know, real life experience? Well, anytime I think you take on a project mm -hmm. and you know the outcome, the challenge then becomes how do you entertain the audience and educate right. them on what those details are along the way. Okay. So what I found in talking to most people, they knew that the boys somehow were rescued, the boys yeah. and their coach. So it was 12 boys and their coach. Right. They knew that they were rescued. They knew that someone died in the rescue mission, mm -hmm. but they didn't know how they got the boys out. And that is the big reveal in the movie. So for people who have not seen it, I won't tell you what yeah. that is, <laughs> but it's an amazing, incredible, impossible story and yeah. an impossible rescue effort that just... One of the one of the divers came up with the idea to get the kids out, mm -hmm. and it was their long shot and their best shot, and that's the path that they took, and it worked out for them. And that's one of those things that I'm glad you brought up because when you're watching the movie, you're like, is this a made-for-Hollywood part that was embellished, or did this really happen? So you do more research, you break down, you're like, wow, this is this is so like how you don't you can't make this type of situation up. No, I you know, you know whenever we're doing this is like. This is actually the third sort of biopic kind of project that I've done yeah. with Ron Howard. Right. And whenever I do that, I do tons of research because mm -hmm. there's the surviving members of these families and yeah. some of the people who are actually in these stories are still yeah. alive. And just out of enormous respect for the facts and how the story needs to be told truthfully, because authenticity is like it's intoxicating. Yeah. That's what people want. They want the truth. Right. And so I have to go into the film confidently knowing what questions to raise mm -hmm. so right, I can understand where that line lives between drama, the actual facts, yeah. and, the, and, the, and what we've kind of taken liberties with, artistic liberties with yeah. in the script. Yeah. So I have to know where those boundaries are. And, um, and oftentimes the truth is even more amazing than fiction. Right. We had a moment in 13 Lives where the boys are found mm -hmm. And this is day 10. They go in, the Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, they find all 13 people alive. Yeah. And they go up and they are talking to them and just trying to reassure them that they will somehow make it back and, you know, to keep the faith and that they'll get the boys out. As they leave, a thing that happened for real was all the Thai kids, they were so sweet, they went and hugged them. And it was just an incredible moment because one of the divers who was the most experienced one, Rick, he understood that we might be the only people who will ever see these people alive again because mm -hmm. ne they're not certain they can make it back into the cave to get them. And now that they've gotten them, the dilemma and the stakes are go way up right. through the roof. How exactly. do you get them out? Right. And so there was a point in the cut where we had that in there. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, when you're making a film, you have to be a little sensitive to what those outside criticisms could be. Okay. And it did feel a little bit like maybe we wrote that as a Hollywood moment. Okay, gotcha. So, but it was actually a factual moment that happened. And we just decided, you know, with the film running so long and just kind of figuring out where the best and brightest moments of the story lived, yeah. it didn't make it into the cut. Mm -hmm. And I'm 
talking about it now because I kind of yeah. I kind of really got attached to that moment. It, that was, moment. it was just yeah. really a great human moment that you saw how respectful and how grateful those Thai children were right. um, that they just they couldn't speak English, only yeah, one of them, but that was their way of showing respect and love and appreciation for someone looking out for them. And can you imagine no. being stuck in a cave in the dark with no real water? They had water that was coming in yeah. from the cave, mm -hmm. dripping into the cave, but they didn't have any food. It's pitch black in there. They have no facilities to go to the bat. Like, it's right. just an impossible it's situation to be in. You can't, you can't really, like put it into words because I'm watching the movie and I'm getting, you know, the hairs on my, my arm are sticking up and I'm feeling anxious and anxiety. And it's not even me in, in the environment. Yeah. I didn't even go through that, but I'm sitting there and every, you know, all the sounds, the edit, the way it's cut, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the core, you know, just everything that happens, something getting caught on a rock and all of that. You, I want to, I was going to touch on a little later, but you brought it up and I just want to ask you to that, to the point, again, we're talking about a, a real story real people, real lives, real emotion. Was there any feedback or criticism that came in that maybe didn't anticipate or maybe some 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 praise that you were like, oh, okay, that we 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 satisfied, we we delivered and, and families are pleased or did, have the families even watched? Have you talked to them? Is that something that's come well, about? Well, I never really, you know, here's the thing with 13 Lives. Yeah. That story is told, the Thai rescue story is told from a number of different perspectives. Exactly. Um, and so we were pretty much the third project mm -hmm. to tell our version of the story. And each one of those versions of the story kind of breaks down to who had rights to which people that were involved I in the story. So we had secured our producer, who was also one of the producers on the documentary, mm -hmm. had gotten and secured the rights to the two British divers right. and some of the other t people that were on the rescue team, the right. divers as well. So our story was largely told through their eyes. But at the same time, we didn't mean that that would be at the expense of the Thai people. Mm -hmm. So they were equally important to have them involved in their That's own story because it's right. a huge, huge, huge story. Right. Like we can't even imagine, you know, as an African-American, that's almost like, what the MLK story means to us mm -hmm. on national scale mm -hmm. to the Thai people, that rescue is that for them. Wow. So the story is told from a number of different angles. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is, uh, I would say, unexpectedly, that happened. That was just a beautiful moment. Yeah. Ron Howard and I had gone over to our composers and we had a spotting session yeah. and we were working in Soho in London. So we left the spotting session, and before we had, had left there, we set the movie up yeah. and timed it so that one of the divers, Rick Stanton, could come to my cutting room, wow. watch the movie, and it's, at that point it was like oh, probably about two hours and 40 minutes. We mm -hmm. hadn't quite gotten it to time just we, yet, yeah. but it was ready to be shown. Okay. We needed to see how it was playing for accuracy, what he thought of it, mm -hmm. factual, every, just every on every Everything. level, yeah, right. how the drama was playing out. So we walk back in, the movie ends perfectly on time, mm -hmm. the lights come up, My one of my second assistants is in there, sort of, you know, just monitoring sure the film with yeah. him, making sure everything's okay, movie ends, door opens, he turns up, stands up, turns around, he has the 
biggest smile on his face. <laughs> and he didn't even need to say a word after yeah. that because I knew we yeah. had done him justice, right. done the dive community justice, and he, it, it reflected the experience that right. they had during the rescue. And as somebody with no, no experience in that particular field or knowledge in that, Obviously, I'm watching. I'm like, wow, this this feels real. But you telling that story and 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 that response, like not even having the words, but just the stand up and the smile and the, the like, the silent acknowledgement that that had to feel rewarding. Um, in in that aspect, yeah. No, it was it was amazing because yeah. first of all, I've met a lot of people in this industry, mm -hmm. um, and and just being in Los Angeles, I've met so many people. I can't even tell you like en enormously globally famous people. Yeah. Um, but when I met him, I was truly in awe. I was like, how many times in my life will I ever meet someone who sacrificed their own lives to save 12 children yeah. and their coach? No. And that's a special human being. Because yeah. the diving that they do is not open water, beautiful Fiji, no, Tahiti <laughs> diving. Not the stuff you know, taking yeah. pictures, the stuff Jamaica. that we see on yeah. National Geographic. <laughs> oh, we're going on vacation in Jamaica or Mexico and we'll try diving. Woo! Right. None of that. Yeah. I mean, this is the most dangerous diving mm -hmm. of all. Yeah. And, I, and in my research, when I was talking to people in the dive community, there's like, open water diving, mm -hmm. there's night diving, there's wreck diving, and then there's this thing called sump diving, what is which that? is, Tell well, people. that's yeah. the cave diving okay, when go. they go in there, and that has zero visibility, and they're swimming in caves, and on these particular guys oftentimes go in there to either rescue or retrieve. Yeah. So it is incredibly yeah. dangerous. You have no visibility. Every time you move, the mm -hmm. silt kicks up, and makes it even worse. Wow. So they're special dudes that do that kind of thing. And That's I'm glad incredible. that there are people on this planet who are dialed in for those moments that we need heroes like that. Right. Because I'm not one of them. No, sir. No, sir. No, I'm not one yeah. of them. I don't, I don't even like open water uh, scuba, snorkeling yeah. that yeah. much. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I love the water. But, yeah, I would, like I told you, I was watching that film, and I'm just like, these these, these crevices are tight. These holes to get through are tight yeah. and everything. Um, you, you must know already the itinerary of the run of show for the interview because you, you, you're going right into something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, working with Ron Howard, obviously this is not your first time, but it seems like it's it's kind of a little marriage there that's a partnership that is is kind of, you know, gaining traction and you guys seem to have that comfortability. What is it like working with him? And what was it like, obviously, Genius and then Hillbilly Elegy, but then this project in particular, can you talk about the differences between the three and how this one, you know, the, being the last one, the first two helped it? You know, if that, that was a crazy question. But well, you know I mean, mean, yeah. In a word... It's special okay. working with him yeah. as a person, as a collaborator, as a director. I'm happy to call him my friend now. Yeah. I've met his family. His family has met my family. Awesome. So there's a certain ease and comfort in working with him. And he's a great director. I okay. mean, like, yeah. you may have no. heard, he kind of knows what he's doing. Yeah, you know, a few, you know, one of my beautiful mind, you know, I mean, we can go down the list, all the all the, the films and just his work in general. But yes, yeah. amazing. Yeah. But from, from, from genius to Hillbilly Allergy to 13 Lives, we've had a lot of success yeah. together. Um, starting with Genius, mm -hmm. when I got hired, I was replacing one of his longtime editors, Dan oh, wow. Hanley. Wow. So Dan and Ron were finishing up Inferno, and Ron has traditionally worked with two editors, so he can bounce back and forth mm -hmm. down the hall with either editor. One may be cutting the drama, one may be cutting action, mm -hmm. or they may just be di dividing up the work, however it works for both of them and the three of them. 
And so what you get as a result of that is you can bring your director's cut forward much quicker. And then that influences the screenings much faster Mm -hmm. because Ron likes to screen his material. He likes feedback. And that's really important that we don't go into anything blind. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's not. It's all it's all planned. So we had great success on Genius. Dan retired. He handed the mantle to me. Mm-hmm. I was so honored. He yes. he actually felt guilty about not being there to help anymore because really? he said, you know, look, I think this is my time and I think you're the right guy and I feel good about it. Yeah. Can, can you talk really quickly? How did how were you connected with Dan? Because that's, well, that's an awesome opportunity. W- to, what to is, be that's a bit of a story in okay. and of itself. Sure. But I'll give you the quickest version of it. Yeah. I was working on this show called Hand of God for mm-hmm. Amazon. Right. And there's an editor in town, Stephen Lang, okay. who um, 20th Century Fox, who owns National Geographic, was yeah. partnered with National Nat Geo. Mm-hmm. They were looking for someone. Wes Irwin was looking for someone. Okay. So they went through a whole bunch of names, and they couldn't really find anybody, either availability or affordability or whatever it was. Yeah. So they called Stephen. Stephen had a regular rotation of shows that he was on, mm-hmm. and he said he couldn't do it. Stephen and I, and I had just met Stephen because I only came in for one show. I was cutting Roots. I okay. finished yeah. Roots, and then I went over to that and um, and did one show for them, one mm-hmm. of the last shows that they had. So Stephen said, I, I can't do it, but Fox is interested. Let me just put you guys together. And when he said Nat Geo, he was little on details. Mm-hmm. First, he didn't know it was Ron Howard. Yeah. First, he didn't know it was Genius. First, then he didn't know no it was details. Jeffrey Rush. Yeah. So what he told me was Nat Geo is doing a thing, and it's called Genius. So I'm thinking, well, Nat Geo is known for science and nature. Exactly. So Genius, I don't know. That could be like an hour of picking up rocks, yeah. you know, I don't know. And then right. we had our rap party and he came over to me and says, James, I have a little bit more information about it. Yeah. Um, Ron Howard's going to direct it. And I'm hearing that Jeffrey Rush is going to play Albert Einstein. And I was like, dude, if you don't give those people my name <laughs> tomorrow morning, you better give them my name. Okay. I'm yeah. all the way in. I don't right. even care what it is. Now you said Ron Howard, you said Jeffrey Rush. Let's go. Einstein. Right. I'm in. Yes, sir. So then I talked to Fox. Mm-hmm. They sent me over to interview uh, for the job because, again, Dan wanted someone. So Dan and Mike Hill were Ron's two longtime editors. Mike had retired already. Dan was finishing up Inferno. So they were looking for someone to help establish and set the look of the pilot. So I I came in under the idea that when we cut the pilot, I was going to be that second person that was going to co-cut the pilot with Dan. Mm -hmm. Well... I sat in the interview. There was an executive from Imagine, Anna Culp. There was Dan Hanley. And there was another guy, Ken Biller, in there. Ken Biller and I had worked together some years earlier on James Cameron's Dark Angel. Right, right. So when I came into the room, there was a little bit of comfort there already because I knew him. Mm -hmm. And we had, it was just a conversation. It really wasn't even an interview. It yeah. was just like, does this guy, because they, they that's assumed. The, that's the best kind of yeah they, yeah, they thought, okay, we know you can do this work. Right. But are you the guy that Ron would be comfortable with, mm-hmm. shoulder to shoulder, working mm-hmm. intimately with him for a long stretch or a short amount of time, taking notes, whatever it is, the right. work style. And I got the job and we were supposed to start, that was like the end of about mid-August, actually. Right. And we were ramping up for a uh, Labor Day start. Mm-hmm. Just before Labor Day, 
I got a call from Dan and he said to me, James, can I talk to you for a second? I go, yeah, fine. I'm, I'm wondering like, okay, yeah. what is this about? Right. You know, and he had a serious tone to his voice. Yeah. And so yeah, he ended up on. telling me that, James, look, I think um, my time has come. It's time for me to retire, you know, and I apologize. I don't mean to dump this whole show on you, but it's yours. And I was used to cutting pilots by myself anyways, wow. but I really, really appreciated Dan's like, respect yeah. and just his, his graciousness for feeling like he uh, wanted to do his share, mm -hmm. but the time had come. Yeah. So, and by the way, we've stayed friends ever since that That's as amazing. well. That's amazing. So that was genius. Mm -hmm. I was sending cuts to Ron early on. He didn't know me. I didn't, I hadn't met him yet. He was shooting in Prague. I was working in Hollywood on one of the lots mm -hmm. and I started sending him cuts early on and he was sending me back the best feedback. Wow. And I thought, oh man, my chest was like, <laughs> yeah, Ron Howard's giving me praise. This is this is amazing. Yeah. So now um, we cut to we're finishing the pilot up. Mm -hmm. It was an hour long, which is unusually long for an right. actual pilot. Right. And we didn't get any notes from National Geographic or Fox wow. or anybody. And wow. it was a huge, huge hit. Yes. And it's launched a franchise. Yes, it's still it going right now. Right. So that season, Emmys came around. A bunch of the cast got nominated. A lot of other the crafts people. Ron got nominated for director, for first time in television. Yeah. Everybody got nominated except yours truly. Yeah. So I was yeah. pretty bummed about that because I guess the assumption was, well, Ron calls Ron, action. You Ron, just cut the yeah, slates off yeah, and, and make sure there's no black holes in the timeline and there's a show. Yeah. So anyway, that's how we did Genius and mm -hmm. later went on to win the Ace Eddie right. in that. the following yeah, exactly. year. And so that Ron and I kind of formed a pack because mm -hmm. he really enjoyed working with me and I enjoyed working with him and we hit it off right. like right away. Right. As a matter of fact, here's a funny little thing that we were working shoulder to shoulder and I looked over at him and I was like, Ron's growing a beard. You know, I had never seen him with a beard before. And I'm like, his beard looks kind of cool. Yeah. And I was kind of having stubbly hair. Okay, and I okay. thought, maybe I shouldn't fight this anymore. Ah, I think I'll grow a beard. Let it go. And this beard is because of Ron Howard on, Ron. and him growing his beard. <laughs> and I just told him that like two years ago. And oh, I was man. finally like comfortable enough to tell him. Because yeah. that's a weird thing to say to somebody. Right. I grew a beard, I man, because beard. you grew a beard. So, I mean, like, it's all cool, though, yeah. but... Not in that, not in that kind of yeah. way, but right. My beard is because of your beard. Right, right, right. Let let the relationship grow a little bit, and then. So I told him. On. He laughed about it. So anyway, um, that that we agreed to work together more. I mm -hmm. did a couple more shows for mm -hmm. Imagine Entertainment right. that were successful, and then Hillbilly Elegy came around. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to direct this other pilot for Imagine, mm -hmm. and I was up for that. But then that went away. Hillbilly Elegy script went immediately into development. Right. And uh, I got a call. And so we spent like an hour and a half mm -hmm. on the phone. He was asking me about um, just the region because yeah. I'm from Pittsburgh. Right. The story was set in like the West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky area. Not super, super close, but culturally but still, yeah, in the same region. It's in the yeah. same vein, in the right. same region. And I told him I understood. I don't know that family per se, but I, I know families like that. Right. I know people like that. I've grown up. I know the places that are being referenced mm -hmm. in the book. I know locally where they are. Yes, sir. So um, he's real big on authenticity because, again, that was a biopic. Yeah. So we talked about a week later. He called me and said, let's do this. Man. You know, so that was amazing. Flew off to New York, 
worked with him, cut that by myself. He never brought in a second editor. Um, and then while we were in the process of finishing um, Hillbilly Elegy, the pandemic hit. Yeah. But at the same time, he was already in development for 13 Lives. Yeah. And so for 13 Lives, he sent me the script. I didn't read it for a couple of days because I was in the middle of so many notes for Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. And I don't like to read scripts in pieces. I, got you. I wanted yeah. to sit down and I have to read it twice mm. because I need to sit down once just as a viewer, just as a, a script of interest right. and just see what I'm feeling about it. And then I read it a second time for from an editorial approach, yeah. from a directing approach, from a performance approach, like what are the obstacles likely to be and what are the big reveals in it and how is this going to play and who would be interested in a yeah. story like this so that I can pass my notes along to him. Yeah. And that's kind of how the three of those projects all came together. And then um, with 13 Lives, it was already like, he was like, you know, don't worry about it. you're you're the guy. So I'm firmly in there, and now yeah. we're just collaborators. You 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 touched on so much, and there's a lot of lot of insight in just the journey of of, of your your career with with Ron itself is is enough for one interview. You know what I mean? Just everything to that. I want to touch on something. We're gonna you know tighten up with the uh, 13 lives. And we're not gonna keep you forever here, but I do want to talk about something because we are posting black, mm-hmm. and and you being feature editor with Ron Howard. You know, you say you're from Pittsburgh, HBCU grad. There's a lot of people who are like, wait, I watched this film. I watched that show. I didn't know a black man was the editor for that. And no, I didn't have anybody else helping me. Ron Howard trusted mm-hmm. me with this and everybody else is putting me in position to win. What is that like? What Were you were you always aspiring to be an editor or working in post? You know, was that something that you saw in Pittsburgh? Was it at, was it at Clark? You know, was, was it... What was the trigger? And then how do you feel about that night now? Do you even think about that, you know, when you walk into these rooms? I recognize the unique position that I'm in. To work with a prominent, mainstream, white male director as an African-American man, that's a combination you don't see enough of, and we Mm -hmm. need to see more of that. So it's not just people in our community working with people in our community. We need to be able to tell stories of all sorts with all kinds of directors, with women, with men, with white males, with Asians, Latino community, the whole thing beyond just the scope of um, black people in post working with black directors. So that's one thing. And growing up in Pittsburgh, I did not like, unlike a lot of other people who ended up in Hollywood who either had some connection or affinity in the filmmaking industry, mm-hmm. growing up in Pittsburgh, there was not really any kind of linkage to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And for me as a person, I've always had a natural curiosity as a storyteller yeah. and just being interested and curious and fascinated with people and all the things and behaviors that go along with that and the mm-hmm. stories of everyone's story, like, who are you? Right. How did you get to where you are? What made you successful? What made you fail? What made you fail and get up and overcome that? And uh, for me, I had a lot of different ambitions and dreams growing Mm up. I mean, one of them at one point was an astronaut. And, you know, I couldn't see a path to that way. So I was like, okay, I want to be a doctor. And that worked out well until I got to eighth grade and we had to do dissections. And then I started smelling formaldehyde and opening up frogs and pigs. And I was like, ah, no, I don't like the sight of blood and I don't like this. This is not for me either. But I always was a really talented, skilled baseball player. Okay. So I thought, you know what? what My path could be baseball, Mm -hmm. you know? But that ended up, that dream ended up changing as well. Mm. And, you know, that's a whole story how that brought me actually into the world of editing. 
because when I got um, post high school, I went to a junior college and was playing ball there. You had to pick a major. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was still finding myself. I I knew inside somehow I needed to find something that I was naturally gifted at and good at. And I've always been interested in writing. I'm not like the guy who the science guy or the math guy. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I ended up picking liberal arts and like visual communications, wow. which was a lot of photography and classes like that. Right. And I was always fascinated with radio and television. And ironically, growing up, I would watch tons of television and just trying to figure out like how do they do that? You mm-hmm. know, little simple things, yeah. jump cuts that I couldn't even I didn't know what they were called jump right. cuts, but I just was like. <laughs> How'd they do that? Now I know about it and like all the tricks and yeah, everything. Exactly. And my mom used to always tell me, because I'd be like, the, the screen would be right here mm-hmm. and I, my face would be right here. And she used to always tell me, you need to sit back. You're going to ruin your eyes. All day. And ironically, <laughs> my eyes still wear glasses, but yeah. I do work in television and film. Right. So anyway, I was playing baseball, junior college. We needed to play more games. Mm -hmm. I transferred down to Clark Atlanta University. It was Clark College at the time. And I was going to play ball down there. But around that same time, my dad got ill. He passed away in my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. An epiphany came over me, and I was just like, you know what? I've always been a really good student. So while I had an eye towards baseball, Mm -hmm. I did understand that the possibilities of making it to the pros can be slim. So I always understood, don't let the sport use you, get what you can out of it. And then that led me to Clark Atlanta University. Mm -hmm. And I continued to feel like, yeah, that's a major that I want to stay with. And that was mass communications with an emphasis in broadcast and television. And then out of that, out of that growth came an opportunity to get, be an intern at CNN I couldn't touch the equipment or anything like that, but it gave me like, it was the proving ground yeah. that in that environment, right. I was still working in their sports department. I was I was taking notes on the games and yeah. filling in the anchors and giving them the rundown on here's what happened. And then I got another internship and that internship would allow you to touch the equipment. And they did train me and, and I just fell in love with editing. And it's almost as though editing found me. Wow. You know, because that became my passion. I became obsessed with it, how I could look at these games and shrink time from a three-hour game to a 20-second or a 30-second clip to describe exactly what happened that night. And then from there, I became pretty good at it, and they offered me a permanent job in the news department. And for the next, really, like 11 years, I was a news editor, eventually making my way to Los Angeles. And so that's kind of my entree into uh, into editing, which is not like a lot of other people no, who have gone to film school. Yeah. And make no mistake, I wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. say I would prescribe my way. My way is just what yeah, happened for the way me. Happened for you. Yeah. But I would I would venture to say, and we're, we're, again, this is this is so much to talk about here. But your your path is so unique, and and I think it's inspiring and also encouraging for somebody who may not have the same path to go to film school and to do all that and say this 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 gentleman I'm watching started there and is working on now three projects with Ron Howard you know you talked about wanting to be an astronaut and you, you know Apollo 13 you know what I mean like mm-hmm, you know going mm-hmm. all the way back that connection so that's just a funny uh, uh situation there I guess on uh, to, to to get you out of here and on this cuz you shared so much with us and talked about this this powerful movie what what advice would you give and what what did you take away from working on 13 lives that still will stick with you obviously the the fight and the survival something that i took away just the the, the tenacity of like 
you know, hanging in there and never giving up. What is something that you took away from this film? Um, and that's like a, a piece of advice that we could leave with the audience today. I don't know, man. I think, I think David, it is just human resilience. Mm -hmm. Like that sounds so simple, right? but it's a massive miracle that a series of miracles that happened across those 18 days to get those human beings out of there, the sacrifices that all those villagers made, mm -hmm. the sacrifices that people from around the world made. And, you know, as a society globally, we're so divided by so many things. Yeah. And we, when we decide to put those divisions and whether they're religious or mm -hmm. politics or race or sex or gender or whatever it is, the list is yeah. numerous. Right. But if we just wipe all of that aside and go, we need to focus on what immediately is most important, yeah. what will benefit other human beings, that is my takeaway, that it restored a part of my faith in humanity. Because mm -hmm. I used to work in news, and I still kind of keep an ear on what's going on. Yeah. And bad news sells, let's yeah. face it. Yeah. And a story like that is just, 13 Lives is just incredible. So I, I feel really fortunate yeah. to have been a part of that storytelling, to have honored the people that were in it, to have yeah. represented and reflected the truth, the facts. And to have the nation of Thailand be really happy with yeah. the final outcome of it and the divers and the respect and like they support the movie mm -hmm. um, and all the Thai actors and yeah. everybody involved in incredible craftspeople that it's just a really, really incredible achievement. But overall, it's just the human spirit and what we can do when we really, really decide to, you know, put aside our differences. Yeah, James, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. That was, that was, it was a powerful film, an amazing film, uh, even, even more incredible story. And what you just said, like to sum it up about putting a belief and a faith in, in, in the human spirit, I think is so real. And, uh, we appreciate you being here. Obviously, we we could talk more about your career and everything else, but obviously, Thirteen Lives just great to have you here. It's an honor. So, thank you again for being here, and we appreciate it. What, what can people follow you? Social media, stay in contact with you. You know what, what's what's going on. I'm on can Instagram, on my Facebook. Yeah. I'm rarely on Twitter. Okay, I I'm very careful about you know, most of the time when I post. Yeah, it's about my career. Yes, sir. You know. Yeah. Um, because I'm not a controversial guy. Right. Um, and I also uh, I'm working a lot. Yeah, and oh, no, so we, you can go down some rabbit see. holes on social media. Sure can. So I usually am just, you know, promoting right now, promoting the heck out of Thirteen Lives yeah. and the story behind it. Mm -hmm. And so many people are very, very curious about how I put together a total of what was three hundred and eighty-two hours. Yeah, a film that came into that cutting room and how we got that down to two, to can, a two-hour and twenty-two. Can you say that film. one more time for the people? Yes, How for the people in the back, back. 382 hours of coverage and to make you, a two-hour and 22-minute and two you, you, were, you were handling that. Yeah, we had, we had a slight bit of right, help. We right. brought in a guy because Ron was so busy. Yeah. Um, he, he was writing a book or promoting a book. The boys, mm. yeah. plug for Ron. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he also was working on one of his other projects, this animated film. Mm. So this is where our, our collaboration and shorthand really comes into play because he trusted me in all aspects of the film. Mixing the film, titling the film, the overall tone of the film, the pace of it, the performance choices, everything. The visual effects. I was his point person for yeah. all of that. So, um, yeah, I had a huge hand in that movie and just the incredible accomplishment of and trust to know that he could go away 
and do all these other things. And it could be. And the movie was in yeah. great hands. No, no, it's it's an incredible, it's an incredible, and even that fact there at the end, another nugget, another gem. So James, thank you again. It's been a privilege. It's been an honor and amazing work, and we can't wait to see what else you work on in the future and just stay stay tapped in with your career. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah. Appreciate uh, it. You have to have me back. Oh, we're going to get you again. back. We're going to get you back for sure. And uh, just, just a shout out to everybody. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Post in Black. Please be sure to follow us on all of our social media channels. Hit the subscribe button, like, share, and share with your network. Until next time, stay black.